Good morning. I realize I'm not up here as often as Ben or Chris, um, and so I will introduce myself in case you're newer to the church or perhaps uh, tuning in for the first time at home, live stream, or watching this later. Uh, my name is Caleb Klontz. I am on staff here, part of the pastoral staff. I serve as the Director of Discipleship Ministries here at Valley Bible Church, and uh, it means a couple of things. Um, sure, I don't get disturbed here, sorry. Wrong thing. Uh, it means a couple of things. Uh, first off, uh, I oversee our life group ministries, and then I also oversee our, our global outreach um, team and, and, and that, that ministry as well. And then I interface with a bunch of other ministries, so um, kind of a, a catch-all position, uh, a little more than just, uh, just a, a missions pastor, I suppose. But, uh, but thankful to be here, thankful to be on staff, and thankful to uh, be able to be up here this morning and to share God's word with you. Um, and so last week, uh, Chris reminded us uh, about two characteristics of those who have ears of faith or, or listen to Jesus. He was covering kind of the first part. Uh, we actually debated whether to divide this up or not, this section, um, but we did, decided to do that. Um, and so he was talking about this, and, and the, the first, he, he listed these two characteristics of those who have ears of faith. And the first was that they value the Messiah's true work. And Chris said this, that those who have ears of faith are not fixated on, our, on what our culture wants right now. They're not fixated on what they want right now. They are overwhelmed with what Jesus Christ is accomplishing with the horizon of eternity in view, and everyone and everything being summed up in him as the Son of Man. And that takes everything that we get hung up on and it dumps it in the petty bin. And as I thought about that this week, that, that rang true, and, and I thought of a lot of the stories that I get to hear from our, our global outreach partners, and I wanted to share a few of those with you, because I know how easy it is for us, especially with COVID-19 and everything going on, for us to have kind of tunnel vision and just to see um, everything that's going on locally, or maybe you know in, in Spokane Valley or, or Spokane County or, or Washington State, and it's easy for us to be fixated on those things and, and upset maybe or frustrated or, or worked up or, or whatever. Maybe you're happy with it. I don't know. Uh, so whatever, whatever your disposition may be, but it's easy for us to focus on those things. So I wanted to share just a few of the stories from our global outreach partners this morning uh, as we begin uh, what has happened since they went into lockdown. And so Jan or Janči Marek, if you remember, he was here in January uh, sharing about their work in Zielina, Slovakia. Um, they went from reaching uh, about 60 people on a given week to reaching uh, between 500 and 1,000. They had 500 concurrent live views of their services and then up to 1,000 people watching, uh, including those who watched afterward. Um, seven people responded uh, to, uh, to join a, a Zoom class. They said, man, we want to know more. And so they had a Zoom class on the basics uh, of Christian faith. One of the men who actually, Yancha uh, recounted to me this story, one of the men, who young men who joined that class had actually been studying abroad in New Zealand and had to come home and was put in quarantine, had to stay in his own room, and he was playing PlayStation as most young men do. Um, nowadays, and he was playing PlayStation during this time of quarantine and wasting his time, if you will. But he decided to turn on the YouTube uh, app on his PlayStation, and lo and behold, their service was live streaming. And so he watched it, and he was so moved that he decided to watch everything that they had on their YouTube channel, and he watched all those things, and then he's one of the ones that said, 
I have to know more. And he contacted them and joined their, their live stream or their Zoom class on the basics of, of Christianity. Um, and so they've had since then three new people officially join their community of faith, which is a big step. It takes quite a bit of commitment. And then there are others wanting to know more and growing. It's exciting to see what God is doing, and we'll continue to pray for that work. Shepin and Kamila Sotskovsky serving in, in Mikov, uh, Poland. Uh, they immediately started a Facebook live stream a worship session uh, on as soon as the, the lockdown happened. And what they saw from that is, is a lot of people that they knew even in their community um, that didn't ever want to talk about spiritual things began to watch and to engage with them. And now they're having these dialogues and these conversations there, even in their own community. There were lots of people from around Poland that jumped on as well. But just neat to see what God is doing, how he was using that time. Uh, Demir Pintarek in uh, Chakovets, Croatia. We don't support him directly, but we have given toward his ministry and to his training a number of times. Um, but he said they, they jumped to 480 concurrent views of their Wednesday night service. What? Over 1,100 views of their Sunday morning services going on. And so we just see, uh, see this growth as people went online, this hunger for a lot of people in these countries as they were in lockdown to seek, search for spiritual things and to find those things uh, with some of our Go partners. I uh, got an update from Elio Vanelli in Trieste um, just this last week. Um, during this time, they, had, they went to Zoom, and they had their services on Zoom. They're a pretty small group anyway, um, but they, uh, they actually had new people joining in. They kind of publicized that new people joining in. And just over the last couple of weeks, they were finally able to, to meet in person and actually meet these people who had, who had jo- kind of joined online, their community of faith. And uh, in fact, they've seen some growth, and they are looking to multiply. And so they're sending two of their elders uh, along with two other families, so four families total, from their small little church, up on north of Trieste onto the plateau where there is no church to plant a church there. And so it's just encouraging, exciting to see what God is doing. Um, I read another article, uh, actually a couple of articles over the past couple of weeks, um, that, that maybe were a, little, were a little heavier for me, uh, still showing what God is doing in the world. But, but I grew up in the country, if you guys don't know, of Bolivia. My parents were missionaries there. Um, and Bolivia is being ravaged right now by this, uh, by this virus. It is. Um, you have evangelical pastors serving uh, the people in remote areas, in villages where there's no running water, um, in villages where there's no infrastructure, um, there's not soap and hand sanitizer to use every day. They're lucky if they wash their bodies once a week, let alone uh, washing their hands. Uh, if they have clean water to drink, it's because they hauled it in a boil that, right, they go and they haul the water from the river, and you don't know what happened upriver, right? That's the, that's the situation here. Um, in Bolivia, and a lot of these pastors are, are serving their people. They're serving the people in these small villages because there is no medical attention, right? There might be several villages over a small clinic with a bed or two, but there's nothing. And these pastors are, are contracting the virus, and they're dying. Over 100 pastors two weeks ago, when I read this uh, last article, over 100 pastors have died. Wow. That seems staggering, at least to me, who, uh, who, who grew up there. Um, an evangelical medical doctor working there in one of the cities actually wrote this. He was interviewed in one of the articles I read. And he said, We continue to receive patients and to be on call in the hospital, praying for our coworkers and bringing the word of God to our patients. Then he asked this. He says, Pray that the infections do not grow exponentially, that we may contain the number of those who are ill, that the number of health workers infected descends, and that their evolution is not lethal. 
Then he adds this, especially pray that we may come closer to the Lord, that we may know him more, and that we may be ready to go to his presence if he calls us. Wow. That's the right attitude to have in the face of something like this. Chris also reminded us that those who have ears of faith value the Messiah's true words and his word. And so I want to turn our attention now as we begin to God's word. And uh, if you would turn to, if you have your Bible with you or an electronic device, if you turn to uh, John chapter 6, we'll be looking at uh, verses 64 through 71, which is our text for this morning. I mean, I would invite you to stand. I know you've all gotten comfy. So I'll have you stand uh, if, if you are able and willing in honor of reading of God's word. All right. John chapter 6, 64 through 71. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life, eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Would you pray with me this morning as we begin? Father God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for our fellowship as saints. Lord, we pray this, that our love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, strengthened with his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. We pray that you will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak the mystery of the gospel with boldness. And to you be glory in our church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And you may be seated. The bulk of that was taken from uh, the Valley Bible Church prayer that we, we wrote up. You'll see it on the back of your bulletin uh, as some thoughts since life, weeks, life groups are not meeting in session. And so I encourage you, uh, a great way to pray, a great example. Um, I encourage you to look at that. This morning, as we look at this passage, uh, we're going to be looking at two inseparable friends in verses 66 through 71, and then we're going to be looking at, uh, at three responses to Jesus and his words and the rest of the, the, our passage. But first, two inseparable friends. And in case you couldn't notice as we read, we kind of pick up in the middle of a conversation that's happening, so it seems a little bit odd. Um, but here's, here's what has, has just happened, and I want to just sum up quickly. I know Chris did it last week. And we're kind of doing it every week. If you want to see a cool map, you have to go back and watch last week's sermon again. 
But anyway, um, Jesus has fed the, uh, the, the 5,000 or 20,000, whatever number you want to assign there, more than 5,000 for sure, but 5,000 men plus women and children. And, uh, and he has seen that they wanted to take him by force to make him king. And so he sent his disciples away across the sea to the other side, toward Capernaum. And then uh, he went up apart, uh, away from the crowd. And we know that in the middle of the night, he goes uh, to cross the sea. He meets them halfway. Uh, they're struggling to get across as there's a storm. Uh, he gets in the boat. Uh, immediately, they're on the other side of their destination. And the crowd wakes up the next morning, and they go, where'd Jesus go? And so they make their way back to Capernaum, and they get there, and they say, when did you get here, Jesus? And they're looking for him. And so we have this, this bread of life discourse that we've been through already, where Jesus is, is really doubling down on, on these people, these, this crowd, and he's, he's really pointing out the fact that they're, they're following him for the wrong reasons. And he's going to continue to push and push and push until we see that they start going, whoa, what are you talking about? This is too much for us. And so that's kind of where we jump in. Jesus is now talking to his disciples, um, not just the 12, but a larger group of disciples. We don't know if it's the whole crowd. Some have likely already dissipated. Um, And they say this in verse 60, this is a difficult statement or a harsh or hard message. Who can listen to it? And Jesus replies to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. And then in verses 64 through 65, Jesus says, But there are some of you who do not believe. For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. You'll notice I omitted this little parenthetical statement that wasn't Jesus' words that John had in there. And I did that not because it's not important. In fact, we'll look at that right now. Uh, in the second half of that, um, in the verse, second half of verse 64, rather, John writes, For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, or more accurately, who they were who were not believing, and who it was that would betray him. And John's point there is is that even during this conversation, Jesus knew those who were not believing his message. He knew those of the crowd. He knew those of the uh, of his disciples, the ones who were even even closer following him, were not believing his message. And Jesus wasn't going into this blind. That that Greek word for know there is is a word oida. It's it's referring to factual informational knowledge. It's just something that you know. And Jesus just knew, right? We knew that we know that he knew the hearts of men. Uh, we know that he knew uh, here that some of these people were, uh, were going to walk away. In fact, that is probably likely how he is or, and why he is uh, just really phrasing and crafting his conversation in the way that he is to really put the pressure on them to make, uh, to make a decision. Are they going to follow or not? But the point is that nothing is a surprise for Jesus, right? Jesus has come to fulfill a mandate, a mission. He has come and he's headed to the cross and he knows what he's doing. He knows what it's going to take. In fact, we see also that he knows who it was that would betray him. So that doesn't come as a surprise to Jesus. He has come and he is not going there blind. He is not headed to the cross blind. We're going to get to who would betray Jesus in just a little bit, so we'll keep moving. But one thing I hope that you have seen and you continue to see and if you haven't, I would encourage you to go back and read from the beginning of, of John all the way through to where we are now. But uh, is, that, is that John does a particularly good, good job uh, in his Gospels of addressing two things. 
two friends, both our human responsibility to respond to Jesus in faith and God's sovereign work in our salvation. And these are our friends. And our first friend is human responsibility. Man is responsible for how he responds to God's provision. God's provision is ultimately found in his greatest gift to us, his son Jesus. Jesus had just told his disciples that the words he had spoken to them are spirit and are life, but some still did not believe. And in the Gospel of John, we see over and over, Jesus called to believe, believe in me. We've already seen, come to me, partake of me in this discourse. Two weeks ago, Ben gave us this definition for unbelief. Might have been three weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, anyway. Uh, Here's how he defined it. He said, unbelief is a willful rejection of God's provision. Unbelief is a willful rejection of God's provision. In Romans 1, 18 uh, through 20, Paul writes this. He writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are unapologetos. They are without excuse. And when we stand before God, we will be held responsible for how we respond or how we responded to the gospel. Do we respond with repentance and faith? Do we respond with unbelief, a willful rejection of God's provision for us, for you? Second of these friends that we see is God's sovereignty. And Ben said this, his quote, uh, didn't, didn't change it because I thought it was, it was fine, didn't need to be approved upon, but God's sovereignty and salvation is the exclusive work of God's grace. So we're talking about when we're talking about divine sovereignty and salvation, that salvation is the exclusive work of God's grace. And in verse 65, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless it has been granted him of the Father, from the Father. If you look, he says, um, Actually, for this reason I have said to you, and, and what reason? That is because some are not believing. Um, and so he's referring back to things he had said already. But if you look in verse 37 and verse 44, the two places where he, he actually takes these two other verses and he kind of combines them and doubles down on them. Verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And Jesus is saying unequivocally that the reason that people don't believe in him is because it hasn't been granted to them of the Father. Jesus said, no one can come to me. And that word can speaks of ability. No one is able. No one has the power to come. We see the the, the terrible state and condition of man in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. It says this in Romans 3, 10 through 18. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. 
The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Oof. Wow. And that is our condition. Not only can no one come, but no one will come. Not on their own. And no one wants to come even if they could. That's the reality that Scripture lays out for us here. And as Ben pointed out in his message, if left to ourselves, we will always choose what? Ourselves. If left to ourselves, we will always choose ourselves. We desperately need someone or something to, to, uh, to intersect our collision course. We are, we are headed in one direction. A one-way descent into destruction. And we're headed there as quickly as we can, and we desperately need someone to collide with that, right? To change that, to enable us to turn, to open our eyes, to repent, to believe in Jesus. Who or what could that be? And Jesus has an answer for that. He says it's the Father. He says no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. It is the Father that grants us the ability to come to Jesus. There's a quote by Tim Chester in his book, um, you can change, and you may go, Tim Chester, who's that? Uh, Tim Chester, actually, you guys, uh, we sing a song fairly regularly. You sang a song this morning that is co-authored by Tim Chester, the Reformation song. Interestingly enough, when we were uh, in, uh, in, in Bosnia, and I was there with Doug, um, they said, oh, you do worship at your church? Play us a song, kind of an impromptu thing, basically. And so, and so he sang that song, which he did a very good job of, by the way. Um, but uh, we sing it often enough. But anyway, Tim Chester, in his book, um, You Can Change, writes this, Conversion is all God's work, but we have a responsibility to respond with faith and repentance. But it turns out that faith and repentance are also God's work in us, his gift to us. God opens blind eyes. God grants repentance. That's why conversion is entirely an act of grace. The Apostle Paul, writing in his second letter to Timothy uh, from a cold prison cell, most likely, at least tradition has it, in the Mamertine prison in Rome. Um, I've been there. It doesn't look very pleasant. Um, he's abandoned by most of his friends uh, for fear of persecution. At this time, he's no longer under house arrest. Um, he's actually facing almost certain execution. And he says this, Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen or the elect, so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. I read those words and it's easy for me to go, well, now wait a minute, Paul. How can it be that you're, that you're talking about these people that are chosen, they're elect, and yet you're saying that you, again, in the context of preaching his gospel, that you would endure all things so that they might obtain salvation? It's a bit mind-boggling for us, perhaps. It may seem counterintuitive. I know that can be confusing. How do these things work together in tandem? But brothers and sisters, we must take God at his word. We must believe what is plainly taught. Uh, and even if we don't always understand how that works together. I love the response 
that Charles Haddon Spurgeon made uh, when he was pressed to answer how he reconciled these two truths. I'm sure you knew with me up here you'd get at least one Spurgeon quote. So here goes. He said this. He said, I never have to reconcile friends. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility will have never had a falling out with each other. I do not need to reconcile what God has joined together. Where these two truths meet, I do not know, nor do I want to. They do not puzzle me, since I have given up my mind to believing them both. We must believe them both. I don't want to belabor this any longer. I know we've covered this already a couple of weeks back. And so go back and look at those passages where Ben and Chris both preached on on those other verses in 37 and 44. If you have questions, by all means, grab one of the pastors or elders. I I know this can be a challenging thing for us to believe, but but that doesn't mean we don't believe it if God's word says it, right? right? For now, we need to move on. Otherwise, I won't get to the three responses to Jesus. So let's move on there. Three responses to Jesus in 66 through 71. And the first is that faithless followers turn back. Faithless followers turn back. We see our first reaction to Jesus and his teaching in verse 66. It says this, As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew, and were not walking with him anymore. As a result of Jesus' teaching, his teaching hard truth, things that were hard for them to hear, many of his disciples leave him. They turn back. They return to their homes. No doubt many of them, their hopes, their dreams, all that they had hoped would happen are crushed. They're disappointed, discouraged, no doubt. This isn't the Jesus they'd been looking for, and that realization sinks in. They had wanted him to be king, to overthrow the rule of Rome, and to be uh, to come to heal and perform miracles and restore, to give them bread to eat. They had wanted these benefits, and, and, and don't get me wrong, a lot of those things are, were, were, were fulfillments of prophecies, right? In the, in the Old Testament. But they missed a big piece of that, and it's what Jesus has, has repeated to them over and over and over again. You see, they wanted him to fit into their idea of who he should be, not who he was and who he claimed to be and what he was here to do. But how often do we do that? How often do we want Jesus for all that he has to offer us rather than for him himself. One more quote. I don't think I have too many more. Sorry. But uh, in his book, God is the Gospel, John Piper asked this question. He says it's a crucial question for every generation to ask, but he asked this question. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed... And all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disaster, could you be satisfied with heaven if Jesus were not there or if Christ were not there? Are you satisfied with Jesus? A lesson for us this morning is that we ought to be satisfied with nothing less than Jesus himself. He is the ultimate prize. Be satisfied with nothing less than Jesus. Moving on, we see a a right response. And the the next response uh, to Jesus and his teaching is that faithful followers lean in. 
We see this in verses 67 through 69. Reads this way. So Jesus said to the twelve, What do you want? Or, sorry, not what do you want. You do not want to go away also, do you? And it's spoken, it would appear that he's looking for a negative response from them. Um, so, uh, but he says, You do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Peter begins by saying, to whom shall we go? See, they have come to realize that Jesus is everything. There is nowhere else to go. Why? Because he speaks words of eternal life. They have understood his message when Jesus said the words he spoke were were spirit and life. This also clearly speaks to the exclusivity of the gospel. There is nowhere else to go. Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, these can only be found in Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus will boldly declare in John 14, there is no other way to be saved, no other way to God but through Jesus so lesson, we must, we must believe in Jesus, and it is Him we must proclaim. We must believe in Jesus, and it is Him we must proclaim. It isn't just some random belief in God or the existence of God that saves. It's faith in the person and the work of Christ. I hear this all the time in evangelism, especially, it seems like. Right? We start get started with somebody. I know it's uncomfortable. We start sharing and, uh, and all of a sudden they go, oh, I believe in God. And we go, oh, phew, I'm off, off the hook. Whew, oh, good, I do too. Ah, move on, let's change the conversation. Good, good for you. And do you go to church? Sounds great, you know. But that's not it. We have to, to push further. It, it is Christ that we must proclaim. Peter gets it. In fact, he speaks uh, for all the twelve, though John is pretty quick to point out that there's still an imposter among them. Um, We'll talk about that in a moment. Peter says that they have believed and have come to know that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Here we see just an incredible declaration of faith. They believe, but not only that, Peter says that they have come to know that Jesus is the Holy One of God. The first thing I want to point out here is that the word know here is not the same word for factual knowledge that was spoken about Jesus up in up in verse um, 64, that's just a, a factual knowledge. Oida here is the word gnosko. Uh, it refers to an experiential knowledge, something that you, that you learn through experience. It's a knowledge um, that, that has a, a more intimate sense to it. And the disciples have, have come to know something about Jesus through their experience with him, and that is that he is the Holy One of God. A title used very rarely for God. In fact, we see the, the Holy One of Israel. Um, you see the Holy One of God only when uh, a demon-possessed man makes that declaration, or the demon does within him uh, in, the, in two of the other Gospels. But it's a clear, a clear indication that they recognize his deity. It's strong here. But they have experienced that by walking with Jesus. 
Brothers and sisters, friends, are you walking with Jesus? I'm often reminded, or I often remind rather, I'm reminded of the fact that I remind our our older children especially about the fact that real authentic relationships take investment. They take investment, don't they? Um, Investment of time, energy, sacrifice, sometimes resources are lost. Marriages take investment, right? Yes. If not, either got a really good secret that nobody else knows about, or you're doing something very, very wrong, and it's probably the latter. So marriages take investment. Kids, do your parents ever go out on a date without you? I hope so, on occasion. Um, do they ever get away for their anniversary? Yeah, it's not because they don't love you. It's because they want to spend time together without you, though. That is true. They want to invest in their relationship. Relationships take investment. Why would it be any different with our relationship with Jesus? Do we want to know him more? We need to invest in your relationship with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we need to lean in. We want to know him more experientially, and that happens in walking with him. Oh, that we might be able to join with Paul in declaring that we too count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. The last response, or the third response to Jesus is, uh, is this, that faux followers, or fox followers, or, or fake followers, rather, uh, deny Jesus. Our passage continues in verses 70 through 71, with what must have been a shocking statement. I mean, Peter gives this magnificent, uh, this magnificent uh, um, declaration of faith. It's emphatic, it's great confession. We believe, we've come to know. You know. Where else would we go? And then Jesus says, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Poof. We're not sure, but to me that would have taken the wind out of my sails a little bit. Um, then then uh, John goes on to, to this comment that uh, now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Even in this circle of men whom Jesus had picked to be his closest disciples, there is one who is with them but is not really of them. And John makes it clear who that is, though at the time his disciples didn't know it. John didn't know it when it was actually happening. He's writing this as a comment later. Interestingly enough, whenever Judas is first first introduced in the Gospels, there's a mention of his betrayal. But none of them actually use that as a time to really go into that. It's just mentioned as fact. Interesting. Um, John makes it clear who it is. Again, they didn't know. Perhaps Judas didn't himself know. Um, I believe he was probably following along like the crowds. He was expecting Jesus to, to be king. In fact, there are several times throughout the Gospels that seem to point toward that. Um, he's invested. He's, he's been there longer, and he's been walking with Jesus longer. And Jesus has, had picked him, and no doubt all those things weigh into his decision to, to stay. Uh, he was the treasurer, right? He held the purse for the group, and yet he was not of them. Um, I'm reminded of the number of students who, 
who came to faith in the first year of Bible school that I went to. It was kind of surprising because we had to actually like make a profession of faith to be admitted to the school. And yet amazing how many of those students would come to faith during a chapel time because they finally heard the gospel or at least understood it for the first time. There are stories of pastors, elders, deacons, missionaries who come to faith in Christ after years of ministry service. What? When they hear and understand the gospel. But there are also those who, upon realizing that Jesus isn't whom or what they thought and what they wanted to believe, they leave. Many even in opposition to, come out in opposition to the gospel. Interestingly enough, we often refer to these people who fall away uh, as people who just fall away. We say, oh, they fall away, or, or they walked away, or they became disillusioned, or they abandoned their faith. But John takes a, makes a, a bit of a different observation in his first epistle. I can't, I can't um, help but think that he's thinking back to Judas when he writes some of this. But if you, if you look at 1 John chapter 2, uh, verses 19, and then we'll look at 22 and 23. He's talking about the Antichrist coming in and the spirit of the Antichrist, but, but not specifically the Antichrist. He's talking about that there are Antichrists, those who are against Christ. And he says this, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they are, not, are, are all not of us. And in verse 22 through 23, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. John says that though they went out from us, they were not really of us because they denied that Jesus is the Christ. Brothers and sisters, friends, we would be remiss to think that everybody even in this room right now has placed their faith in Christ. For sure that everyone who comes to church on a Sunday morning is a, is, is a believer. Perhaps you are here today and you have lived a good Christian life. Christian life. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you come to church every Sunday. You give your offering faithfully. Serve on a mission or ministry team, but are trusting on your own righteousness, your own laurels, or your own good deeds to save you, and have never placed your faith or trust in Jesus and Him alone. I know, I was there. That was me as a young man until I realized something. I was terribly deceived into thinking that somehow my own pedigree and righteousness would get me into heaven. After a series of not great decisions and choices, I realized that I'd been deceiving myself. The invitation is the same for you as for everyone. Jesus says, believe in me. Believe in me. That he came and lived a sinless life and died for your sins on the cross. He was buried and rose again, conquering sin and death. And that he comes again for us. Believe and you will be saved. I have, again, I mentioned I was in that camp until I realized how desperately deceived and deceit, 
deceitful I was. Um, trust me, you can't fake it till you make it. Okay? Doesn't work here. I mean, it does work here. You can fake it. A lot of people could go, oh, yeah, we'll vote him into heaven. That's not how it works. Fortunately, we don't get a vote. You can't earn your way by living a good life or being a good person. You must believe in Jesus. If you haven't done so, I encourage you, I implore you to do so. That is the invitation of the Gospel of John is believe in Jesus. As we prepare prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper and the worship team uh, comes, I wanted to just recount to you the, uh, the story uh, of a song we sang earlier that we'll sing again. It's a story recounted by the Indian evangelist uh, Dr. P.P. Job in his now out-of-print book, Why God Why. Uh, it's also recounted in several other, other places. But in the late 1800s, uh, there was a great deal of missionary activity happening uh, in northern India, especially northeastern India. Um, now, part of the reason for this um, was earlier work that had happened, like uh, people like Adoniram Judson, uh, who had come and paved some of that way. But, but the main part was that in the latter part of the 1800s, there was great revival in Wales. <clears throat> and many missionaries went out from England and Germany to India, specifically, uh, to spread the gospel there. And one of these Welsh, Welsh missionaries, uh, while attempting to reach the headhunting Garo tribe, of the Assam region in northern India, succeeded in seeing a Garo, uh, a Garo man come to faith in Christ, along with his wife and their two sons. Their newfound faith was contagious, and others actually in the, the village began to, to uh, accept Christ as well, to place their faith in Christ. But this uh, began to upset the rest of the village, uh, began to upset the chief of the village, and he summoned the whole tribe together and called the first family that had been converted uh, to renounce their faith or face execution. And the father was first told that if he didn't renounce his faith, his sons would be executed in front of him. Now it's said that this man had just been studying the Gospel of John and had read the verses specifically in John chapter 12. Not our passage, I found out, unfortunately. But uh, uh, John chapter 12, verses 24 through 26, that say this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. With those words in mind, the man replied to the chief, with these words, he said, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Enraged, the chief priest gave the order, and his two sons were shot through with arrows. The chief again asked the man to renounce his faith, or he would see the same fate happen to his wife. His response, though none go with me, still I will follow, no turning back, no turning back. And with that, the chief priest had his wife shot through as well. One more opportunity was given to the man to renounce his faith or to join his wife and their sons in their fate. In the face of death, the man replied with these familiar words that were to be his last, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. He too was shot dead. 
I tell you this story because so often I think it's easy for us to sing songs without realizing what's behind them. And, and what's behind this one is, is the weight of the cost of discipleship. There's a cost in following Jesus. Really, it's about saying along with Peter and the others, Lord, to whom shall we go? We have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The story doesn't end there. It's actually recounted that this sacrifice and the words of this man haunted the village chief. Why would someone be willing to do this? And it haunted him to the point that he eventually called the entire tribe together again. But this time, in front of the whole village, he renounced his faith in their, in their pagan beliefs. And he declared that he too, he said, I too belong to Jesus Christ. And this led to many more placing their faith in Christ. And the Garo people became one of the, uh, the largest groups of Christians in, in that part of uh, northern India at that time. And in fact, to this day, the majority of the Garo people are adherents to the Christian faith. We're going to sing uh, again a verse of, uh, of I have decided to follow Jesus, and then we'll partake of the Lord's Supper together. But, but think, through, think through the story a little bit and the weight and what we've talked about this morning, and sing the words if you mean them, and then we'll have the Lord's Supper together.